Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I don't need to give his introduction again, so we've got to get right to the topic. Please welcome back Dr. O'Donnell. All right. Uh, this is real proof that the Irish do have a love of penance, the fact that you all came back again. So anyway, I, I do appreciate that. Um, two things I want to mention just before we jump back into the war. Since I always feel guilty talking about war and leaving spirituality beside, there are two little booklets that if any of you are interested, one is actually published by Liguri Publications. It's called An Hour with St. Patrick. If any of you are interested in sort of like devotion to him. It's a beautiful little thing where they take excerpts from Patrick's writing and you spend an hour in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament sort of reading with Patrick. It's by Anthony F. Cifolo and I'll leave it up here if someone wants to write it down but it's through uh, Liguri Publications. And there's another little great booklet put out by the Daughters of St. Paul called Devotion to St. Patrick and it has a beautiful sort of reflection by the late Richard Cardinal Cushing but then at the end has a whole series of prayers, his basic history of his life, and things like that, which hopefully, if some of you are interested to sort of cultivate a devotion to Patrick, those are two little things that you could get for maybe a buck fifty and would get you going. So I just share that with you. Okay, what you have here in this dispensis, some of you who might have held on to the dispensis from last week, had the basic breakdown of Ireland into the great lordships. Remember that map I gave you last time. This one here shows you a map of Ireland and the principal sites of military engagement that took place during the war. Thank you. Then in addition to that, if you look, you have sort of battle plans of some of the principal battles. So this is not going to be a talk about spirituality. I almost have guilt doing this, but it's about the war, all right? And you remember that quote I gave you last week from Chesterton, right? The great gales of Ireland, God alone made mad, for all their wars are merry and all their songs are... Sad. Oh, yes, you can be taught. God bless you all. All right. Remember we had talked a little bit about why this war is not better known. Again, I'll ask because I see some new faces out there. How many have ever heard of the Nine Years' War? Okay. If you, if you weren't here last week, how many of you have heard of the Nine Years' War? Okay. Very, okay. Just a, a few of you have. All right. How many have heard of Tyrone's Rebellion? That's not, yeah, that's a little, yeah, it's a little more common. Okay. Now, part of the reason why this war is not better known, first of all, it doesn't, it's not an American ending, it's an Irish ending. You know what that means? <laughs> you lose. All right, so <laughs> who wants to study losers? Well, there's a lot of people who like the Old South, right? All right, Gone with the Wind still has a certain appeal, and so there's a certain parallel there. 
But part of the problem, we talked a little bit about Tudor propaganda that was issued at that time and their understanding and their thoughts concerning the mere Irish or the native Irish and the sense that to kill an Irishman was no worse than to kill a dog. I mean, there was a real sense of ethnic and cultural animosity that characterized the relationship between the two peoples. And this animosity was on both sides. Both sides didn't really appreciate or care for the culture of the other. The difference is that one, one group of people were in their own country. Okay, that, makes it, that does make a difference. All right, we had talked about the building up of what Belloc called the Elizabethan myth, that Elizabeth was this great queen of tolerance that achieved this great cultural and economic and military resurgence for England, which is really not true. We talked a little bit about Erin or Ireland's cultural unity, right? Common language, common tradition, common culture, and yet how the love of autonomy, the love of the rural environment, and those type of things kept from Ireland that sort of centralization that characterized most other European countries, like the Italians of the Middle Ages, right? Or the Greeks in classical antiquity. You were either an Athenian or a Spartan or a Corinthian or a Philippian. The other day we had a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Filipinos. But anyway, <laughs> all right. it's not a sin to laugh at that, but if you laugh too much, maybe it is. I don't know. All right. So what we tried to emphasize in this war, the reason why it is so important, it was a war that was fought primarily above everything else for the freedom of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland. That's why they were fought. Every time negotiations opened up between the English and the Irish, the first article demanded was the free exercise of the Holy Roman Catholic faith. It was also a battle for Gaelic independence to try to maintain and achieve the independence of Ireland. Clearly, the men who fought this war, in my view, they are heroes. They are heroes. They're men worth reflecting about, thinking about, uh, their heroism and the sacrifice, and what they risked in order to defend uh, the Catholic faith. Remember that religion is a deep emotion. And part of the problem when you get modern secular historians, everything's either politics or economics, right? Religion, well, that's kind of private. People aren't really motivated by religion. Really? The deepest emotion in man, even Freud was aware of this, is religious faith. When it is deep, it can fill a people or a nation with an unconquerable zeal, like the Spaniards, right? Or more recently, think of Catholic Poland under the communists. All right, people packing those churches, praying fervently to Our Lady of Czestochowa for what? For deliverance, for freedom. And it was the faith that unified those people. If you have a chance to see Newt Gingrich's film, Nine Days That Changed the World. It's a great production. It's about John Paul's first visit to Poland. I think we're never going to finish this war. But anyway, we need to keep going through this. All right. The continental and European significance of this war has never been fully appreciated. Even though it ends in an Irish defeat, what it cost England, what it cost Elizabeth, really led to the maintenance of Belgium as a Catholic country because England was unable to support the Protestant cause adequately in the war in the Netherlands. And that will be very, very significant. Now, as far as the setting of the war, giving you some background to the war, and it's a little bit of Irish history, but that's okay. That's what you're here for, right? So embrace the darkness. All right. 
There is no Guinness. All right. White or red is fine. That's okay. We can be ecumenical tonight. There are some Italians here, aren't there? Vino. Ah, and vino veritas. All right. As the Irish say, if it's not true, it should have been. All right. <laughs> All right. Adrian IV, Pope Adrian IV, issued a bull, Laudal Bilitor, in 1155, in which he allowed or gave permission for Henry II, you know, the guy who's eventually going to kill Thomas Becket, to go into Ireland for the purpose of helping to reform religion and spread the Christian faith in that country. Adrian IV, as you're probably aware, is the only English pope in history. Right? And it was an English pope that gave them permission to go in. But if you read the bull, what's very significant, the purpose was to help advance the cause of religion and help restore order and morality in that country. That <clears throat> was not done. All right. The Norman invasion. Everyone knows about the Norman conquest of England, right? Battle of Hastings, 1066. Why do you know that? Yeah, because you were taught from a certain perspective and certain things. I'm not saying it's not important, but everyone knows 1066. <laughs> Normans killing Saxons. Sounds like heaven to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Keep your sense of humor, please. All right. That's a bad joke. Okay. Bless me, Father. All right. So, but everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. 1492, Columbus discovers America. Everybody knows that. Well, that at least makes sense, because that's part of our story. All right? Well, in 1169, the Normans invaded Ireland. There was a Norman invasion of Ireland. There is not a Norman conquest. All right? And that's where you start to have the problems. The Normans came in, and they conquered England. They conquered Wales shortly after that. And the Scots invited them and worked closely with them for a period of time. So what happened is when you actually had the Normans come in with their invasion, the initial invasion was from 1169 to 1172, if you want a date to hang on. What happened is they carved out large portions of territory, but there were huge areas of the country up in Ulster in the far west of Connacht that were not touched at all by the Normans. As a matter of fact, when they tried to go more deeply, they were routed sometimes by the Irish. Now, what happened, once they got there and they carved out these kingdoms, sort of after the Irish tradition, right, earldoms, they began to look around and the Irish girls were very cute. They married them. Remember we talked about the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. So, the children would be brought up singing Irish songs, listening to Irish poetry. And they came to be more Irish than the Irish themselves. Many of these large Anglo families, like the Fitzgeralds, the Fitzstevens, the Ormonds, some of these names that you now totally associate with, with the Irish, all right? But they were originally Norman names, but through intermarriage they became more Irish than the Irish themselves. What eventually happened in the 14th and 15th century there was a huge Gaelic resurgence culturally in the country, everywhere. Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, all of them were welcomed into, from the continent into Ireland. And Irish chiefs, in imitation of the big Anglo-Norman families, began to build beautiful friaries, beautiful monasteries for the Franciscans and Dominicans. And everywhere, Irish was the language that was spoken. And Irish customs thriving everywhere. 
So much was the concern of the English government that in 1366, they passed what became known as the Statutes of Kilkenny. Now, the Statutes of Kilkenny basically said that you, if you are of English descent, you cannot imitate the cultural practices of the enemy Irish. What does that mean? You can't speak Irish. You can't ride a horse like an Irishman does. The Irishmen didn't use stirrups. They grabbed the horse by the left ear, hopped up. They were great horsemen. They loved their horses, all right? You couldn't wear a mustache. Did you know that? After Sergeant Pepper, that hit really close to home. All right, couldn't wear a mustache because that was in Celtic fashion. Also, the custom of fosterage, where you would take a son and let a neighboring clan, once he was of age, like at 10, would raise him for like till he was 10 to 14 to sort of cement ties. Fosterage was forbidden. All of these things forbidden to them. But it's a tacit admission that the conquest failed or the invasion failed because you have to start passing statutes. But it's going to lead to a lot of cultural animosity, right? If your culture enters another country and then the other culture begins to dominate your culture, that's going to cause friction, right? Going to cause resentment. Now, if you want to add fuel to the fire to sort of the ethnic tension, add a religious question, right? 1537, Henry VIII revolts against Rome, proclaims himself head of the Church of England. It's going to cause all sorts of problems. Cecil, recognizing this, he says, well, if you're going to do this, we can go forward with this. But you have to remember, because there's a clergy that is so addicted to Rome and the bishop of Rome, it's going to cause problems in Ireland. Because the people are so wedded to the pope. They have this vision that the pope is the king of Ireland. And that's what they think. And so this is going to cause real problems. Finally, one of the pivotal acts in Irish history that's going to be a great lead into the war Pope St. Pius V, one of the great popes in our history, who began the tradition of the popes wearing white. Do you know that? He was a Dominican. He wore his Dominican habit as pope, and he was such a, considered such a holy man that all the subsequent popes continued to wear white. It's because of St. Pius V. That's why if you're in Rome and if you're a Dominican, you're supposed to always walk with your black cape on in Rome, because only the pope's the all-white guy. All right? So, did you know that? Okay. It goes back to Pius V. After pleading for 10 years to Elizabeth, who was now the Queen of England, who took a coronation oath that she would hold, uphold the Catholic faith, who at that mass when the host was elevated, she got up and walked out. Then came out with the Book of Common Prayer, forced all the Catholic bishops to step down, came up with a new ordination rite, and then moved the country completely back to Protestantism. Finally, uh, on February 25, 1570, Pope Pius V issues a bull, Regnans in Excelsis, in which he will excommunicate Queen Elizabeth. So once that happens, whatever claim England had to Ireland was then thrown out of the window. Would you like to hear a little bit of the bull? In case you never had heard a bull of excommunication. We declare the said Elizabeth to be a heretic and an abetter of heretics, that those who adhere to her have incurred the sentence also and are cut off from the unity of Christ's body. And moreover, we declare that she is deprived of her pretended right to the said kingdom, and that all her noble subject and peoples of that said kingdom, and all others who have in any way sworn allegiance to her, are absolved forever from such oath and from any obligation of lordship, fidelity, and homage, as now by the authority of this bull we have absolved them. That's just one little piece. All right. 
So before we get to the Nine Years' War, there is a devout Catholic man by the name of James Fitzmaurice who hears this and says, we can't cooperate with this system of evil. Why? Because starting with Henry, what he began to do was suppress the monasteries. Now, the suppression of the monasteries in England had a devastating impact. In Ireland, it was appalling. Why? There weren't a lot of cities. Ireland remained essentially a rural country, except along the seacoast, right? Dublin, Waterford, Wexford, Cork to Galway, all right? When you began to suppress the monasteries in Ireland, you were attacking the essence of their civilization. They were hospitals, centers of learning, absolutely essential, particularly in the rural areas. So what happens is all around the pale, you ever heard that expression, beyond the pale? The pale is the little area around Dublin where the English had firm control. If you went up into Ulster or to far west Connaught, the Irish princes would not allow the suppression of the monasteries. And that's why when English governors come over, they're appalled. There are all these popish priests everywhere, Franciscans, Dominicans. And then, of course, what's really scary, since 1541, Jesuits. And these guys believed in God, all right? And they believed in the Pope. And they were on fire with the zeal of we, what we should call the Catholic Reformation. Remember, there was not a Reformation. The real Reformation was the Catholic Reformation. You had a Protestant revolt, but there was a Catholic Reformation. One was a revolution which attacked the fundamental principles of Christendom, but then there was a Catholic reform that sought to truly reform the church in morals, not in doctrine, because the church did need a Reformation in morals. There were some real scandals in Europe at that time. And people like Borromeo and Ignatius of Loyola and Philip Neri and people of that ilk knew that and saw that. Well, this James Fitzmaurice in 1579 will come back and he will land in Ireland. And he has some English prisoners in chains and he unfurls his great banner and it has written in Latin, In all our trials and tribulations, Jesus and Mary are our hope. He reads the papal encyclical and proclaims a crusade. And the people in Munster rally to him. And they take as their war cry, Papa Abu, which means the Pope to victory. Now that's a war for you. The Pope to victory. You might have seen in Braveheart where they're sort of pounding their shields. They're going, Abu, Abu, Abu. That means onward to victory. That becomes the war cry. Okay, to make a long story short, the rebellion starts... To end the rebellion, it's the first instance that we actually have of this happening uh, in Ireland. They begin with some initial victories militarily, but then they decide the only way we're going to end this thing is if we induce famine. And so what they do is they begin to go around and with their house, they begin to cut all of the crops down, drive all the cattle into the sea and induce a famine. Eventually, the leaders are taken down, they're caught, and the whole effort in Munster ends in failure. The leaders are caught, tracked down. Most of the poor people who were supportive but non-combatants end up dying. You ever heard of the poet Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen? Those of you who are literature majors might remember that. He was there, and this is what he writes, what he saw of the famine. Out of every corner of the woods and glens they came, creeping forth upon their hands, because their legs would not bear them. They looked like anatomies of death. They spoke like ghosts crying out of their graves. 
they did eat of the dead carrions. Happy were they if they could find them, yea, and one another soon after. If they found a plot of watercresses or shamrocks, there they flocked as to a feast for the time. Yet not being able to continue there withal, so that in a short space there were almost none left, and a most populous and plentiful country suddenly made void of man and beast. So it ends in failure, but the people rallied to the cry of the Pope to victory. And since that sacrifice was not forgotten, it was not a war that was fought in vain. All right? If it's remembered and it's passed on, it is not in vain. Now we have to move ahead a little bit to talk about one of the great figures in Irish history. I happen to share the last name with them, and I kind of feel upset about that because I don't want to give you the indication that I'm biased, although I am. But it's different from between a bias and a prejudice, right? Biased is informed, all right? There are reasons why. His name in Irish history, most Irish history historians write very glowingly about him, so it's not just me. His name is Red Hugh O'Donnell, or Hugh Rowe O'Donnell, considered the son of prophecy. He's born in 1572. He was considered to be one of the great hopes. There were all sorts of prophecies that were flung, that there was going to be a time when this young man who would come out of Ulster, and it's all in the book, you can read it in the book if you would like to do, would eventually become a godlike prince for nine years and would banish all the foreigners out of Ireland. All right? Cecil, back in Hampton Court, hears about this prophecy, writes to the Lord Jeopardy, John Parrott, and says, we've got to do something about this. We've got to do something about this. And this is going to be a real problem for them. They're concerned. Why the Armada? Remember, the Spanish Armada is threatening them. They have all these concerns. Red Hugh's father, his name is Hugh Dove O'Donnell. He kicks out the English sheriff and says, we're not going to have any English sheriffs in Turconnell, up in modern-day Donegal, anymore. And so they say, well, what are we going to do? We'd have to get an army of at least 3,000 to march up in a northern campaign to try to tame this guy. What are we going to do? They come upon an idea. Let's try to kidnap his son. If we kidnap the son, we can keep him in line. So... A captain named Nicholas Skipper by the Lord Deputy Parrot is sent up with a cargo of Spanish wines and a frigate stays way up in the north, you can see it on the map, into Loch Swilly, way up in the north of Turconlis, that deep inlet in the northernmost tip of your map. The merchant comes in and invites McSweeney and young Red Hugh, Red Hugh's probably about 15 or 16 years old, to come on board and sample some Spanish wines. It looks like an innocent merchant ship. They go on board. They sample the wines. As soon as they have some wine and they're relaxed, soldiers come in. Their weapons are taken. They hoist sail, and he is taken off to Dublin Castle. Now, it is such a romantic story, because why? He's imprisoned in Dublin Castle. He's interviewed by the Lord Deputy. He sees other captives from the country, and this is where he gets and imbibes this undying animosity towards England. He sees England is the problem of Ireland. Until we break this bond, we'll never have our freedom, we will never have our dignity. He makes a daring escape, all right, on Christmas Eve, gets out, makes it all the way down south where he is embraced by one of the O'Toole's, the head of the O'Toole clan, but the English troops surround him and he's captured and brought back. This time he's thrown into prison. They say he'll never get out. So he spends at least three years in anguish of mind in prison. Evidently, 
there was some money that was given to help him. Someone passes him a file, and he's able to file slowly through his chains. And then at Epiphany, he's able to make this dramatic escape. And instead of going north back to his home, he goes south to Wicklow, the opposite direction. And it's a horrible night. Snow is falling, winds falling. He walks about 30 miles all right, then eventually in complete exhaustion with virtually no shoes, he and his buddy Art O'Neill just crawl under the rock and the guide goes off to try to get help. They're left there for about 12 hours. Hugh is barely conscious. He goes out and grabs some grass, brings it back to his friend Art and says, you know, we're rational, but, you know, animals eat, you know, eat grass. Try to eat some of this. Art wouldn't do it. So he just ate some grass and leaves and just laid down, thought he was going to die because of the cold and the snow. He's eventually found by O'Byrne and O'Toole. They try to put some ale in Red Hugh's mouth. He swallows it, but then they try to give some to Art O'Neill, his companion in the escape, and he won't take it. Art is dead. Okay, Hugh breaks down, just starts crying, will not leave Art. They have to for forcefully drag him away. They bury Art there. Powerful story. He's taken to a remote glen in Wicklow. You've ever seen the opening scenes of Braveheart? That's not shot in Scotland. That's all shot in Ireland. Those are the Wicklow Highlands. That opening scene with the pipes play and you see the glens. That's where Red Hugh was hiding. Then with a series of brilliant horse rides, he works his way all the way back up till eventually he meets his relative, Hugh O'Neill, who we'll have to talk about. He's the other great figure. As a matter of fact, if you start reading the book, everyone's named Hugh in the first two chapters. Sometimes it's called The War of the Three Hughes. You have Hugh O'Neill, Hugh O'Donnell, and Hugh McGuire. Those are the three big clans, the three principal figures who are involved, and they're all named Hugh. So it's pretty easy on an identification. All right, so what eventually happens? He meets with O'Neill, their celebration. Then O'Neill takes him to McGuire, who's his cousin. McGuire takes him down the N River. Then eventually he comes to the family castle at Bally Shannon. All of his clans come rally to him. There's pipes playing. There's this incredible reunion. A thrill is sent all throughout all of Ireland because all Ireland was angered that he was kidnapped. But to escape from Dublin Castle, I mean, that's like, you know, stealing the golden Fort Knox. I mean, Dublin Castle was the center of English authority. He escaped, made it back to his people. There was an English captain named Willis who was oppressing his father and mother, was a very old man in Donegal Castle. They had pillaged a Franciscan monastery right at Donegal Bay. And then he gathers his clan and he goes back and he orders immediately to leave and they just flee. And so he liberates the castle, and everyone begins to say, this is the prophecy, this is the moment. And then he goes up to the great ancestral rock of Dune, and he's solemnly inaugurated as head of his clan. He's inaugurated as the Prince of Turconnell on May 3rd, 1592. All right. Are you with me? Is this making sense so far? Now he's got his liberation. He's met with Hugh O'Neill. He wants Hugh O'Neill to join into a confederacy. The only way we can do this if we unite, right? Remember that great scene in Braveheart? Unite us. Unite the clans. That's what he wants to do. And O'Neill wants to do it too, but he's very cautious. He's very astute. Is this the right time for this? O'Neill's about twice the age of Red Hugh. Very astute man. So, what does he begin to do? Red Hugh Okay, how can I explain this? This is sort of complicated. There's another O'Neill clan headed by Turlock O'Neill. Turlock O'Neill is called the O'Neill. If that's the title you have, that's higher than being the Earl of Tyrone. Does that make sense? That's an English title. Hugh O'Neill is the Earl of Tyrone. There's this old guy named Tipsy Turlock. His nickname was Turlock of the Wines. Okay. 
But while Red Hugh was gone, he had been raiding Turconnell. So Red Hugh gathers his clan and immediately launches into Tyrone because there's English troops there and English spies reporting on everything going on in his country of Turconnell. And he launches several attacks against Turlock. Now, O'Neill's own clan begin to get angry at Red Hugh. So Hugh O'Neill, not Turlock, Hugh O'Neill, travels to Donegal to say, Hugh, you've got to slow it down, you've got to calm down. And Red Hugh's saying, why? <laughs> We're free. Why stop now? So anyway, he says, the, what you really need to do is you need to come back to the Lord Deputy and tell him you're sorry for escaping from Dublin Castle. He says, why would I do that? All right? Because then they can't oppose you. You're no longer a criminal. You'll have full authority and they can't do anything against you. So he agrees. Reluctantly, he goes to Dundalk, and what must have been this incredible scene of mocking? This would make such a great movie. He's sitting there mumbling to himself in Gaelic, you know, as this, as he's saying, I am heartily sorry for having offended the great Queen Elizabeth and everything. Obviously, a total mockery. As soon as he makes his submission, he goes back and he immediately starts writing letters to Philip II of Spain. He sends a Catholic, Catholic Archbishop of Toom to Spain with letters saying, I have escaped, I am free. I am gathering and forming a Catholic confederacy. We won't be able to resist the power of England without Spanish support. Will you support us if we rise in defense of our faith? And so, Red Hugh makes all of these contacts and begins forming this great confederacy. One of the first ones to join in is a brilliant cavalry officer. You know, there's some guys that are just fabulous with horses. His name's Hugh McGuire. Fabulous cavalry man. He hears what Red Hugh's doing. He says, I'm with you. The McMahons join in, the O'Rourke's. There's a whole series of the northern clans. Now, what eventually makes this really interesting is Turlock, having been hit on several times by Red Hugh, says, I can't defend the country. So Hugh O'Neill says, well, why don't you give up your title? Turlock says, okay, I will. So now Hugh O'Neill, who's the Earl of Tyrone, goes to Tullahoe on the great rock of the O'Neills, and he is solemnly inaugurated as the O'Neill. He's not only the Earl of Tyrone, he's now head of all the O'Neills, which make him the most powerful lord in all of Ulster. All right, so Red Hugh wants him to join in. Now this Hugh O'Neill, gosh, this would be such a good movie. I could see Mel Gibson in this role so easily. Hugh O'Neill had been married to Red Hugh's sister. Siobhan was her name. Siobhan had borne him two sons. Siobhan had gotten sick, though, and had died, so he was no longer attached. He had two wonderful sons, uh, Henry and I forget the... And Hugh. Hugh, of course. All right. I guess the mother had some influence over the naming of the child, but that's the father's name, too. So, all right. Easy in Ireland. All right. So what eventually happens, though, that makes this very, very interesting is Hugh O'Neill goes down to Dublin Castle, and he meets this beautiful English woman. She happens to be Protestant, but her name's Mabel Bagnall. Now, her brother is the head commander of the British forces. These two meet at a dinner party. They fall in love, and Hugh says, well, why don't we get married? So he has his carriage outside. I know this was before marriage preparation, okay? I understand. I'm a pre cana guy. I understand that. We know how, they know how to balance their checkbook and all that. All right, so, <laughs> so what eventually, he takes Mabel Bagnell, they go out into their carriage, and she elopes with him. Sir Henry Bagnell is furious. You're taking my sister up to the wilds. What makes matters worse, she goes up, and guess what she becomes? Roman Catholic. And she marries him. And so Henry Bagel is just enraged. All right. 
Now, how to make a long story short. Okay, this is so tough. How can I give you the whole war? There is a Protestant governor in Connaught by the name of Richard Bingham. He's been raiding on Hugh McGuire's territory, stealing his cattle, killing his people. McGuire's written all these letters to Dublin Castle. They do nothing. So McGuire goes and attacks Bingham. Bingham is incensed. How dare an Irishman attack the governor of Connaught? So he complains to the Dublin government. The Dublin government sends out an army that marches to Enniskillen, where Maguire has his castle, and they seize Enniskillen Castle. They take it from Maguire's people after bribing some of the, the guards in the castle. All right. Red Hugh hears about it. The English go back to Dublin. Red Hugh and Maguire then surround the castle, say, we're going to starve these guys out. We're going to starve them out. They have nowhere to go. They can't get food or anything. So news comes that the Irish are starving them out. So, the English commander at that time, the Lord Deputy, says, I want another English army to go and raise the Irish siege of Enniskillen Castle. And I want two men to command the army, Sir Henry Bagnall and Hugh O'Neill. Got it? Okay. Hugh O'Neill and Bagnall. They hate each other's guts. Okay. So the two of them go and march with an army to try to relieve the castle. Red Hugh writes a note saying, you know, I don't know about this, you shouldn't be doing this, I thought we were friends, etc. There's an initial engagement. Hugh O'Neill gets hit in the, in the leg with an arrow and then says, oh, I'm wounded, I'm wounded, oh, oh. And so he escapes. He doesn't involve himself anymore in the battle. All right? Smart man. All right. Now, what eventually is going to happen, the siege goes back and forth. Eventually, an even larger army will be sent to try to relieve the castle. And that becomes the Fort of the Biscuits. This is the first big battle. I'd like to read it, but I don't have time. But you have the actual description in my book. And also, you can see the actual. It's called the Fort of the Biscuits because it was a large British force that was brought with all these biscuits, foods, gunpowder to resupply the castle. The result was Maguire attacks, the entire English force is defeated. Now, this is big news. Remember, there hasn't been this type of military confrontation in Ireland in a long time. Maguire beats the, defeats the English army at the battle known as the Ford of the Biscuits. They plunder everything. Now, this is a huge moral victory. Why? The first time the Irish go head-to-head -head with an English army with this new confederacy, with these new clans, they achieve a victory. News is brought to France. News is brought to Spain. Elizabeth hears all over the continent, there's been this incredible Irish victory. They defeated the English. It's a huge embarrassment for England. The Battle of the Ford of the Biscuits. All right? So, this is a great victory um, for the Irish. But it's going to cause some problems. O'Neill, throughout all of this, doesn't do anything to help the English cause. So he's suspect. Red Hugh wasn't even that happy. He said, if you don't help us with this army coming, I can no longer consider you my friend. So what he did is his brother Art came with about 100 horsemen and about maybe 1,000 marksmen to join the army. But we don't know if Hugh O'Neill sent him. So what does O'Neill do? Everyone's casting aspersions on him. He walks right down to Dublin without even asking for safe passage, goes before the Dublin Council and said, for 16 years I have served the Queen faithfully. I was just shot in the leg. And How dare you say that I am not faithful? 
And Bagnall, of course, is saying, he's not faithful, you can't trust him. But the Earl of Ormond, several of the councils say, he's, he's been faithful for 16 years, why shouldn't we trust him? So they say, okay, well, you know, hold O'Donnell in line, send your son down as a pledge, as a hostage, you know, and, we'll let, and they let him go. So he goes back up and he says, oh, my son's off being fostered with another clan, I can't get him. And I just found out my people have just sworn fealty to O'Donnell, so I, I really can't do anything. And then he writes, the Lord Deputy says, these are loose and undutiful answers, all right? So they know that something is up. 3,000 of England's finest soldiers are pulled out of the Netherlands where they've been fighting the Spanish. Guess where they're going? To Ireland. O'Neill hears that. He says, the time has come. The time has come. I can no longer hesitate. He sends an, a group of his men in to attack uh, some of the English forts. He actually raids the pale, and he openly joins the Confederacy. Now, what begins to happen then from 1595 to 1598, the war continues. There's fighting and negotiation. Fighting and negotiation is going on back and forth. The 3,000 men come over from the Netherlands. They're placed under the command of Sir John Norris. Sir John Norris is one of the most capable English uh, commanders. There's a whole family of Norris brothers who fought and had served England militarily. He comes over with this army, and he marches his army up to take control of Armagh, which is the primatial sea up in Northern Ireland. Now, O'Neill skirmishes, but doesn't take him on directly. He knows when they leave Armagh, they have to go by a little place called Clontibret. You have a map there of Clontibret. Now, what O'Neill is great at, just like Hannibal, what made Hannibal a great military genius, is he knew how to pick his location. It's location, location, location. He puts his army across the river. He knows the English are going to have to walk right by there, and his army's on the other side of the river. So very difficult to attack with cavalry and things if you have to ford a river, right, to get to the guys. So... Sir John Norris and his brother and Bagnall lead this attack, and O'Neill, who has been training his men in continental fashion, he got permission to import lead from the English government so that he could lead his roof at Dungannon, his residence at Dungannon. You know what he's doing with the lead? <laughs> Fashioning in bullets. Bringing the farmers of Tyrone in, teaching them how to fire matchlock, teaching them how to use guns, etc., etc. So they attack, and instead of running, it's not guerrilla warfare. They stand, they hold the line, and they repulse two English charges. Sir John Norris is seriously wounded. So the English begin to move, and the Irish start cheering, counting the victory won. Then an enormous English officer by the name of Seagrave, mounted on a horse with 40 other cavalry officers, charge across the river, and he sees O'Neill, singles him out, and Seagrave, who's an enormous man, hurls his body on Hugh O'Neill and dehorses O'Neill, and the two men fall down to the ground. Everyone lowers their weapons. There's like total silence. Everyone's watching. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And what eventually happens is the Seagrave had mail all over his body, everywhere except his groin. So O'Neill took his sword out and was able to go straight up through the groin and kill him, stands up. He has killed him. So everyone starts cheering the Irish cavalry charge and the English retreat. Another huge victory. So you see what's happening now? These are two back-to-back -back victories, face-to-face -face confrontation with the government. And in each instance, it has been a great victory. All right. Now, some of, I'll give you one other little battle because I think you'll find it interesting. It's the Battle of Mount Breed. It's not in your map, but I should tell you just because it's a fascinating story. Remember the English had been in Armagh and they were marching back from Armagh, 
Okay, they had left a garrison under Captain Stafford up in Armagh. Do you find this interesting? I, I hope you do. Okay. There's an English garrison. Uh, they begin to suffer from lice, all right, and lack of food because the Irish are surrounding them. So they send an army of about 1,000 men to reinforce them carrying all sorts of food. Hugh O'Neill assaults them at night and captures all. It kills some, but captures most of them. So then he works on this brilliant strategy where you have, like, say this is, how can I do this? Okay, let's say this is Armagh. This is the town of Armagh. Here's the little cathedral. There's a ruined monastery here, and then you would be approaching from the south. So what he does, what is so brilliant, is he strips all the guys of their uniforms, you know, their helmets, their red plumes, their breastplates, and he has all his men do it. They start beating the Diana drum, and they start marching. And so the next day, they're marching right up to Armagh, and you can, everyone in Armagh can see the army coming. So as they're coming, all of a sudden from the woods, you have gunshots, spears and arrows throwing, and some of the guys are falling down. So Stafford says, we've got to save our men. So he sends half the guys out, and as soon as he gets out to the field of battle with this engagement, everybody gets up and turns on them. Got it? All right, so everyone pops up. It's, it's a stratagem. They, they, thought they weren't really English. They're all Irish. So they all have been faking getting shot and dying. They all turn on him. They realize the trick. They start to run back. But Art Hugh O'Neill had sent his, his relative, Art O'Neill, with the command of regiments hiding in the monastery. So they come sweeping out, cut him off. Guess what the end result is? They're decimated. Armagh is retaken. He allows those who survive, once they give all of their weapons and armor, to march back to Dublin. Why O'Neill is brilliant? Psychologically, let these guys naked without any guns, let, you know, 800 men just sort of walk back to Dublin and say, the guys are killed, this, and this is it. So, I mean, it leads to this general sense of panic. So what does the government want to do? Let's negotiate a truce, all right? Now, the mere fact that they had to negotiate a truce, you see what that's going to do? That's going to really boost the prestige of the Irish, and it's going to weaken the influence of the government, and it's going to cause all sorts of problems. In the meantime, three Spanish frigates with 60 musketeers in each frigate and guns and arms for about 2,000 men with gunpowder lead sail into Killybegs. So the first time some Spanish troops come along with powder, with guns, so the, ang sort of, sort of the Irish-Spanish alliance is working. It's the first thing that Philip II has done to show that he wants to support them. Then in addition to this, we're going to have some more interesting things that are going to happen. Negotiations begin up. You have a guy named Wallop and Garnier representing the government. And what they do that sends Elizabeth ballistics, they use war and peace instead of rebellion and pardon as the terms. All right? For her, it's rebellion and pardon. But they say, well, let's have a cessation in the war. Let's have a truce. Let's see if we can have peace. All right? And then again, what do they want? The free practice of the holy apostolic Roman faith. That's the first thing to demand. All Irish lands that have been confiscated within the last 40 years are to be returned to the native chieftains, etc., etc. So, the negotiations go on. While that's happening, Red Hugh sweeps into the province of Connaught, which is the far west. So he leaves Tricarnell and comes way down, catches the English completely by surprise, and then begins to establish Irish control in the far west in the province of Connaught. It is a great victory. Lord Deputy Russell can't take it anymore. He says, Rice to Elizabeth, take me back. I, I, I don't want to be here anymore. So he resigns. 
he will, they will then send another Lord Deputy by the name of Burrow. And Lord Burrow says, the problem is we've got to separate O'Neill and O'Donnell. We can't have these guys together. Together they're a formidable force. So in 1597, he says, we're going to have a three-pronged attack. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to actually take my army and march up to Portmore to confront O'Neill. Sir Conyard Clifford, who's going to be in Connaught, is going to march up in the west and attack Ballyshannon. That'll make O'Donnell separate from O'Neill. And then we're going to have a guy named Barnswell march with a bunch of palesmen right up the center. We're all going to form a southern defensive line. Why? They can't get into Connaught. They can't support each other because we can attack from these two-pronged positions. And then we'll be in a great position. We can defend the south and then begin our invasion of Ulster. Okay. To make a long story short. Okay. It doesn't go very well. The, the guys under Barnwell start up and Tyrell and O'Connor... Uh, fall on these guys in the past, decimate the entire army. Barnwell is captured, sent to O'Neill as a prisoner, and only one guy survives going back to Dublin to saying, we're all dead, all right? Not a good start uh, to the effort, all right? In the meanwhile, Burrow himself goes up, and he actually seizes Portmore, which is this little fort right on the Blackwater, but then O'Neill draws all of his men on. They capture Portmore, so they go into the woods. Big mistake. You don't want to go into the woods. The Irish are waiting for them. They fall upon them. You have over 63 royalist gentlemen, including the general himself, are killed. Lord Burrow gets wounded. He gets sick from his wound, and he dies just four days after this event. So this is a real mess. Clifford is going up trying to take Ballyshannon. They're assaulting the castle for five days. One castle that the English never were able to take, the castle of Ballyshannon. Never could fall. Four days with artillery pieces blasting. Red Hugh eventually leads an assault, and Clifford has to flee. A total failure, total disaster. So by the end of 1598, there is no Lord Deputy. There's virtually no army. There's no plan. So what are you going to do? So Elizabeth then decides to open up her purse and really spend. In spring of 1598, O'Neill tries to take that little fort of the Portmore. Remember I mentioned that on the Blackwater, the one thing that Burrow had taken. But they have these saker guns that are mounted in the wall. A saker gun is something that... It's like grape shot. It's like, you've seen all those cans with sort of the wide opening, and when you light it, it shoots out this discharge of lead and bullets in numerous directions. So like if you're, you could have 80 guys charging, but you would all be hit. So they have these mounted, and they're very effective, and the Irish aren't used to them. And so they're not able to take the fort. So what does O'Neill say? We will surround them. We will surround them. And so that's what they try to do. They surround them and try to starve them out. But what happens, Elizabeth hears about this. This is the one victory they've had. So Elizabeth then will send over an additional 2,000 men, her best veterans from the Netherlands. The command is given to Henry Bagnall. His sister Mabel is dead. She's died up in the north, natural causes. But he just can't stand O'Neill. So Bagnall says, let me be the man to lead this army. It is the finest Elizabethan army in terms of armor, artillery, equipment that has ever been sent to Ireland. And so they start marching off. They march up to Armagh. And on August 14th, the day before the Assumption, they set out for what was destined to become the greatest battle uh, in the Northern War. Now, it's a fascinating story because what happens is the Irish believed in prophecy. 
So Red Hughes, hereditary historian, comes up and says, well, do you know what St. Birchin prophesied? That at this river, the foreigners will fall. And he's telling the chieftains this by the campfire. And they say, wow, tell all our men this. So the prophecy is read to all of the men, and it works them up to this fevered pitch. And then Red Hugh and O'Neill give the following exhortation to their soldiers as the drums begin to beat. The great Diana, and they're marching out with all of the drums. And in the silence of Ulster, you just hear this, vroom, vroom. The great drums as they're marching, moving off into the vastness of Ulster. So this is their speech. Brave men, be not dismayed or frightened by the English on account of their strange weapons, their unusual armor and arms, and the thundering sound of their trumpets and tambours and war instruments, and their own great numbers. For it is absolutely certain they shall be defeated over this day's fight. Of this in truth we are convinced, for you are on the side of truth, and the other is on the side of falsehood, confining you in prisons and beheading you in order to rob you of your patrimonies. Moreover, we are quite sure that this day will distinguish between truth and falsehood. Now, if you want to look at the picture you have in your map of the Battle of the Yellow Ford, I think you have that on the third page. Do you see where that is? Okay, the Battle of the Yellow Ford. I'm going to read to you Mitchell's description. Does that sound okay? And I think if you look at the map, you'll be able to get a sense of what's going on. This was the greatest battle in the war in the north. The sun was glancing on the corslets and spears of their glittering cavalry. Their banners waved proudly and their bugles rang clear in the morning air. When suddenly, from the thickets on both sides of their path, a deadly volley of musketry swept through the foremost ranks. O'Neill had stationed here 500 light-armed troops to guard the defiles. And in the shelter of thick groves of fir trees, they had silently waited for the enemy. Now they poured in their shot, volley after volley, and killed great numbers of the English. But the first division, led by Bagnall in person, after some hard fighting, carried the pass, dislodged the marksmen from their position, and drove them back into the plain. The center division, under Cosby and Wingfield, and the rear guard, led by Kuhn and Billing, supported in flank by the cavalry under Brooke, Montague, and Fleming, now pushed forward, speedily cleared the difficult country, and formed in the open ground in front of the Irish lines. It was not quite, says an Irish chronicler, in admiration of Bagnall's position of his forces to attack the nest of griffins and the dens of lions in which were placed the soldiers of London. Bagnall, at the head of his first division, and aided by a body of cavalry, charged the Irish light-armed troops up to the very entrenchments in front of which O'Neill's foresight had prepared some pits covered over with wattles and with grass, and rolling headlong both men and horses into those trenches and perished. Still the marshal's chosen troops, with loud cheers and shouts of St. George for Merry England, resolutely attacked the entrenchment that stretched across the pass, battered them with cannon, and in one place succeeded, though with heavy loss, in forcing back their defenders. Then first the main body of O'Neill's troops was brought into action, and with bagpipes sounding the charge, they fell upon the English, shouting their fierce battle cries, Lam Derg, the Red Hand Abu, and O'Donnell Abu. O'Neill himself, at the head of a body of horse, pricked forward to seek out Bagnall amidst the throng of battle, but they never met. The marshal who had done his devoir that day like a good soldier was shot through the brain by some unknown marksman. The division he had led was forced back by the furious onslaught of the Irish and put to utter rout. And what added to their confusion, a cart of gunpowder exploded amidst the English ranks and blew many of their men to atoms.
And now the cavalry of Turconnell and Turowen dashed into the plain and bore down on the remnant of Brook and Fleming's horse, the columns of Wingfield, and Cosby reeled before the rushing charge. While in front to the war cry, Battaglia Abu, the sword and axes of the heavy-armed gallowglasses were raging among the Saxons' hosts. By this time, the cannon were all taken. The cries of St. George had failed or turned into death shrieks, and once more, England's royal standard sunk. All right. The problem was he put his regiment over 150 paces apart, so when one was being attacked, the other couldn't get up in time to help them. The result is 3,000 of the men died. The ones that survived fled to Armagh Cathedral. What does O'Neill do? Leave all your weapons, leave all your guns, leave all your clothing, and you walk back to Dublin. And that's what he did. It was the greatest military defeat in Elizabeth's reign. Nothing compares to it. For months, that's all anyone talked about, was the victory of the Yellow Fort, the victory of the Blackwater. English historians themselves also were stunned by the extent of this victory. The result of this victory was that in 1599, by 50, the end of 1599, no English force was able to maintain itself in Ireland. All right. Yes, 1599. All right. Now, okay, I keep saying this to make a long story short, and that is what we are trying to do, but it is a long story. All right. So what happens? Elizabeth has to do something. This is just devastating. She turns to her favorite, the Earl of Essex, the Earl of Essex. And Essex is a hot-headed guy, passionate, handsome, daring. He'd been a buccaneer raiding the Spanish at Cadiz. So she opens up and gives all this money. The biggest army England had ever put into the field was now going to be assembled. 20,000 men. Now back at that time, that is a huge army. 20,000 men, armed, furbished, etc., are sent with the Earl of Essex to Ireland, with, along with 2,000 horse. They set sail and they arrived there on April 15th. All right? To give you a sense, three-fourths of the, the revenue of England went to this war effort. And that three-fourths of the budget was spent in seven months. That gives you a sense. Imagine three-fourths of the federal you know, budget. Well, it's not hard to imagine now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. All right. <laughs> All right, so it's going to be a real problem. It's going to be a real problem. He arrives. Elizabeth says one thing. Above everything else, march north, go after O'Neill. What direction does he go? He goes south, takes seven men and goes south, and he achieves a few little things, but he's a rash shot at and sort of disrespected. Before he marches, he then sends Sir Conyard Clifford against Red Hugh. Guess what happens? Clifford is killed. Red Hugh achieves a sterling victory at the Battle of the Curlew Mountains, which you have a battle plan there. Description in the book. Don't have time to go into that. So now he's left all by himself. And so what does he say? I need more men. So he gets 2,000 more men, along with a letter from Queen Elizabeth saying, what is the matter with you? Go after this guy. So he now begins, with Clifford dead, to march up to face O'Neill. He gets into Ulster, and a guy named Henry O'Hagan says, Hugh O'Neill craves an audience with your lordship. He craves to meet. And he's just dismissed. Then he comes back the next day. He craves to meet with you. So then Essex says, okay. I'll meet with him. 
So this is probably the most foolish thing Essex ever did. With no witnesses, he rides out to meet O'Neill, the archer. O'Neill gallops his horse. He stands on the bank. O'Neill gallops his horse into midstream, takes off his hat, bows to him. They talk for 30 minutes alone. You, you don't do that, all right? Talks for 30 minutes alone. We don't know what was said, but knowing O'Neill, he probably went and talked about the people that were, he knew that were Essex's enemies, that Essex didn't like, said, and so those are the people that are harassing him. And then he says, all we want, we don't want to end Protestantism, we just want the faith to be untouched in Ireland. And we want our lands back, the ones that have been taken just within the last 40 years. Essex says, well, you know, that sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> so six of his men are called in and six on O'Neill's, and they begin this negotiation. They begin this negotiation. And then Essex says, okay, I'll leave you to carry out the negotiations, work out a truth with this guy. And he goes down and takes a bath back at Newry and leaves. O'Neill then sends his army back to Ulster and just negotiates, winning a battle more greater than Yellow Ford. Why? Earl of Essex is disgraced. He had this huge army. He achieves absolutely nothing. Eventually, he'll get a letter from Queen Elizabeth saying, you talked to this man for 30 minutes with no witnesses. You negotiate with him, and then you get nothing. Of course, to trust this man on his word is trusting the devil himself. How could you not do better in your negotiation? It's this gall You can read it. It's in the book. It's this galling letter. So what does he do? He gets on a boat, sails back, rides all the way to Nunsuch, breaks into the queen's apartment. She hasn't got her wig on, hasn't got her makeup. She's in her nightgown. And she goes, Essex, all right. And um, he's got mud all over his boots. And then eventually, of course, you know the rest of his story. Eventually, uh, she at first is nice to him, but then Cecil says, you cannot. He defied your order. You can't do it. Eventually, he gets imprisoned. He leads a rebellion, and he ends up losing his head. All right, so that's the end of him. So what eventually happens, oh my gosh. So basically from 1599 to 1600, which was the holy year, Pope Clement VIII had proclaimed a holy year, you have virtually a free and independent Ireland. All right, but what eventually happens is a new governor is sent over. Not like Essex, but a real smart intelligent military man who has patience, who's willing to do things the slow way and whatever it takes. And he says, the only way we're going to end this is if we get them to slit one another's throat. That's what we got to do. So bribery, forged letters, induced famine. I won't read you the accounts, but they start going down into Munster where the memory of the famine from James Fitzmorris was still alive. And with the heart, they start ripping up all of the crops. 500 head of cattle drowned in the river or shot, wiped out, inducing famine. It's a type of ethnic cleansing. It is a war against the population. A number of the southern chieftains that had entered the Confederacy feel that they can't hold out because they can't protect their people. Mountjoy begins a series of a ring of forts around Ulster, trying to hem them in. And then in a brilliant move, he gets an English commander named Sir Henry Dacra to sail from Chester in England, and he sails up and he lands with 5,000 men in Loch Foyle, way up in the north, and he builds this fort. So for the first time, you have not only forts along the southern border, but you actually have an English army in the rear. Now that's serious, right? Because now you've got two-front war, all right? Now, the battle continues to rage on. 1600 on into 1601. 
back and forth, back and forth, then eventually what's going to happen that's going to change everything is in August of 1601, 33 ships sail from Spain. Now, I can't go into all of it, but what the letters, they had always said, we need a Spanish army of five to 10,000 men, and they need to land in the north. They need to land in Ulster. The Spanish army comes. It's only 3,000, and they land not in the north. They land at a little place called Kinsale. Do you see where Kinsale is? It's as far away from the action as you possibly can be. The Spaniards land. They read a proclamation from the Pope and the King of Spain that they're holding this for the King of Spain. Mountjoy immediately realizes what's going on. This has to be crushed. If this is not crushed, it's all over. All right? So all of his men, he gathers everybody that England has in Ireland, the Anglo-Irish allies, and they completely surround and bottle up the Spaniards at Kinsale. All right? What does Red Hugh do? Even though he's fighting a two-front war, he says, we have to, for the sake of the nation, leave our own beloved territory, and we need to go down there and try to rescue and help these Spaniards and link up with the Spaniards. So he marches off on All Saints Day. Hugh O'Neill, a little more cautious, like, how are we going to do this? It's a winter campaign. You don't fight winter campaigns in Ireland. But he realizes there's nothing else he can do, so he marches down. Okay, again, to make a long story short, they eventually, after numerous adventures, arrive, and you have the Spanish in Kinsale. The Spanish have made some successful sorties. Say this is sort of Kinsale. You have the English surrounding them. What do the Irish do? The Irish come, and they surround the English. So they say, we're not going to let them graze their horses. We're not going to let them get any food. Because even though they have control of the harbor now, they can't bring it into Kinsale because the Spaniards have it. So it's a waiting game. So what happens? Both parties are suffering horribly in a horrible winter campaign. The Spanish commander says, you've got to help us. We can't just stay here. For the first time, the, the friendship between Red Hugh O'Donnell and Hugh O'Neill are one of the great friendships in Irish history. They always supported one another. When the letter from D'Aquila, the Spanish commander, comes, Red Hugh says, we have to help them. They've come to our country. We have to attack. Hugh O'Neill says, absolutely not. If we stay here, we can starve them out. We can win by just delaying. Let's starve them out. Red Hugh will not have, we have to attack. All of the other clansmen side with Red Hugh. For the first time, O'Neill and O'Donnell get in a horrible argument. But finally, the vote is taken. All the clansmen say, we will attack. And using the old English calendar, it was Christmas Eve for the English, because they hadn't accepted the Gregorian reform. So, it says, we will attack on Christmas Eve. They won't expect it. And then we'll give them a real Christmas present, celebrating the deliverance of our country. All right? So... They even argue over who's going to take the lead in the attack. All right, now what happens, okay? One of the worst weather storms in history. Thunder, lightning, St. Elmo's fire, the whole sky is lit up, torrential rains, rivers flooding. The make <laughs> long story short, they lose their way. Something happens when O'Neill's men, when the light comes up, it's supposed to be a surprise attack. The Brits are there, they're armed, they see them, they sense this sort of surprise. The attack begins, all right? The attack goes for about 45 minutes. They hold their line. Then eventually, O'Neill says, we need to reform. So just as he's leading his men back to reform, Red Hugh finally gets there with his...
who have been lost, and they see O'Neill moving back to reform, it looks like they are retreating. So he tries to rally his men. His men are unsteady. He leads a cavalry attack, but then another wing comes in and drives them out, and the entire Irish army collapses. Now what makes pro the problem even more compounded, the battle had been going on for about an hour. The Spanish, who were supposed to sally out from the city and join, never come out. They never came out. As a matter of fact, Aquila, when he goes back to Spain, will be arrested because they thought he cooperated with the English. But the result is the Irish total collapse. They ran for eight miles. And they had never lost. They had never known defeat in nine years. And they were completely disheartened. So disheartened, Red Hugh O'Donnell can't see. He wants to go back and resume the engagement. No one says, well, we can't do it. We just lost. Red Hugh doesn't sleep for three days and three nights, does not sleep. Finally says, I myself will go to Spain. I will talk to King Philip III, because Philip II was dead, and I will convince him to send another army. And so with all the lamentation of the clansmen, he makes his younger brother Rory, his successor, commands that the two of them be friends, he sails off. And there's a great poem, My dark Rosaline, do not sigh, do not weep. The priests are on the ocean green, they march upon the deep. There's wine from the royal pope, and Spanish aid will give you health and hope. My dark Rosaline, my own Rosaline. He goes to Spain, has an audience with the king, another armada is fitted out, getting ready to sail, and... Suddenly, at the castle of Simancas, he takes ill. And after battling a horrible fever and an illness, after 16 days, he dies. He dies in Spain. And he's buried in the Franciscan monastery at Valladolid in Spain. News comes back. We'll talk about whether he was poisoned or not. There was an English agent named Blake. And it's disputed, hotly disputed by both sides, whether he was, in fact, poisoned or not. But anyway, news comes back that he has died. Um, and it just takes the heart out of everybody. Takes the heart out. Rory continues to fight a little bit, but there's no Spanish aid coming. We're left on our own. Um, Elizabeth herself is very aged. Eventually, Rory is forced to make peace. Hugh O'Neill continues to hold out, continues to hold out, and guess what happens? He still hasn't surrendered. He's being surrounded. No one will betray him. There's like 2,000 pounds for his head if anyone will betray him. Eventually, Elizabeth dies dies a week before O'Neill finally comes in to Lord Mountjoy and will make his submission. But what happens when he comes in is Mountjoy doesn't tell him that Queen Elizabeth had died because you know who's the King of England now? James VI of Scotland, who is James I, who is Celt, who hated the Puritans, all right? So when he surrenders his sword, he actually surrenders it to James, not to Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is dead. Nevertheless, the Treaty of Melifont is signed, and you know what Mountjoy promises? Because he doesn't know what the new king is, is attitude. You know what he promises, O'Neill and Roy O'Donnell? You can practice your faith. The one thing they really want. You can practice your faith, and you can be restored. Eventually, the two men sail. They meet James I. They embrace him, and he reissues them patents and titles, etc., and to the total frustration of the Protestant colonists, because everything they had been fought for, the Catholic earls get all of their lands back, and they're allowed to practice their faith for five years. Then eventually, after this plot against the king, James I of England will drink a toast at a state festival to the eternal damnation of the papist. And that's what they wanted. Then the persecution begins. Priests start to be hunted down, and the whole thing turns dark. Eventually, Rory and Hugh O'Neill and the son of Maguire are accused of doing another rebellion. And so what they do, they're summoned to London for trial. Now, if you're summoned to London for trial, you know what that means? You're, going, you're not going to make it. 
So it ends up in this moving pathos called The Flight of the Earls or The Path to Rome. September 14th, 1607, the exaltation of the Holy Cross. The flower of Gaelic Ulster get on a boat and they sail for France and then eventually end up in Rome. And while they're in Rome, they're greeted by the Pope. They attend the canonization of Francesca Romana. But one by one, they begin to die in exile. And so it ends up in a defeat. Now, there'll be other rebellions, other uprisings in 1640. O'Neill's young nephew will eventually, Owen Rowe, will come back and will take his uncle's sword and will lead another great rebellion. But the point I would make here is these men who fought for their faith and their fatherland are true Catholic heroes. More should be known about them. They should be understood and respected. In Rome, which is always the asylum of Catholics, right? Rome doesn't judge by worldly standards. We don't, well, you failed, therefore you have no importance. No, you stood as a confessor to the faith. And when they were died, they were all interred in the beautiful Franciscan church, San Pietro Montorio. And if you ever go to Rome, up on the Janiculum Hill, where Raphael's beautiful transfiguration, you might have seen that painting before of Raphael of Christ transfigured, which hung in the sanctuary there. The tombs of those men, with epigraphs dictated by Pope Paul V, are still there where it says, confessors to the faith who fought and defended the holy Roman Catholic apostolic faith. And in the 19th century, if you went up there, you would oftentimes see the pavement wet in the morning with tears of people from Ireland before Ireland had its independence. Now, sadly, Ireland is selling its birthright. I don't know if you're, it has become so secular, it's so sad. They've had such a tradition of love of the priesthood, love of the mass, and what 800 years of English persecution was not able to do, 15 years of prosperity is now doing. And so it's really sad. But to become aware of the heritage, become aware of what these heroic people did to fight for the faith and for the fatherland is worthy of remembrance. Rome thought so, and I think so too. So thank you for listening to me tonight. Thank you, Dr. Donald. Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell. Thanks. How would you have liked to have taken a history semester with Dr. O'Donnell? Okay, so our usual rules apply. Your question's one sentence. Make sure you have a question mark on the end. question has to do with the topic at hand. And don't try to take my microphone away from me. Has the Irish-English conflict of today lessened since the Good Friday Accords? Oh, absolutely. The Good Friday Accord has had a profound impact. Yes, I remember when I first went, just to give you an example, when I first went up there in 1973, they saw the name on my passport. I was taken out, thrown against a wall, frisked the whole thing. They thought I was gun running, driving through the towns, the machine gun nests, the cameras at the border and all that. All of that is gone. When you go into Northern Ireland, there are no stations. There's nothing. There is the first time, I think, where there is a genuine sense and hope for peace. That's not to say there's not still tension. But to have Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley shaking hands and sharing power, you would think Jesus has come. I mean, it is an amazing, it is something that you would never have thought of. Never thought possible. So there's still tensions. A lot, of the pa- a lot of the neighborhoods are still territorial, painted in red, white, and blue if you're unionists, and they're flying the Union Jack, and you've got your Republican areas of the green, white, and the orange, and things like that. And so it's not that there aren't still tensions, but the level of cooperation, the incorporation of Catholics into the police force and into security forces, also the power sharing, a lot of the inequality that had always characterized the artificial 
Northern Ireland because they called themselves Ulster. They weren't Ulster. It was six counties of a nine-county province. And the reason Donegal and the other counties were included is because it would have given the Catholics the majority and everything was gerrymandered. Why Derry, which was 80% Catholic, had all Protestant representatives because they would link it with other parts. So those type of injustices are no longer there. Three years ago, the last British security forces in Northern Ireland were withdrawn. So there are no British troops in Northern Ireland right now. So it is much, much better, and there's a genuine sense of cooperation. And I think on the part of the newer generation of trying to cooperate, I think, for example, the last really horrible bombing was the Omaha bombing. But the reaction of everybody to that, both the Catholic and the Protestant community, has been very healthy. And hopefully we're getting in a stage where there's a little more Christianity and a little less hatred and, and things like that, but a sense that we need to go forward here. And in a certain sense, ironically, the secularization of the Republic and the financial boom of the Celtic Tiger in the 90s did a lot to end some of the, the Protestant bias and discrimination because, they, because it was always sort of the lazy Catholic South who can't work and things like that. And actually, the economy in the South went, actually surpassed the North briefly. And uh, although now everyone's struggling in poor Ireland, I mean, homes, just to give you a sense, we, were just, we just got back from Ireland that were going for 450,000 euro are now worth 150,000 euro. So you can see, imagine that in our situation, how devastating that would be. So it's difficult. But a lot of the Irish I spoke to thought it was good for them. That it was going to their head and they were living beyond their means and what they shouldn't have been doing. So. But there's a lot more hope for peace. And you, when you go there today, there's some neighborhoods you'd want to be a little careful, but it's not, you're no longer, in a sense, fearful of your life or something like that. There has been very little in the way of uh, sectarian violence in the North since the Good Friday Agreement. Um, just a question, I don't want to be negative, but just something I'd read online, not on a scholarly source or anything, That's obviously fine. Wikipedia, um, and it, maybe you could comment on it, and that is just the personal, private prayer life, moral life, whatever, of the two leaders, because I'd read something about Mabel Bagnell and Hugh O'Neill, that she had died l neglected and something about his mistresses. Do you know anything about that, or is that just propaganda that was put up by someone? You know, as in their personal life, their moral life, was that... I know, well, I know that initially the marriage was a happy one. Whether it continued that way, I do not know. There were a lot of things that were aspersions that were cast upon Hugh O'Neill and things like that. How many of those are true? But there was an essay done by a Catholic priest who we went through step by step showing how this was not true, that all the marriages were valid. Now, it's true that he and Mabel might have fallen out, but you can imagine that kind of wedding. Let's, we're in love, we're at a party, let's elope and get married. Not a good foundation for a stable relationship. So that she might have been neglected by him wouldn't, is not something that would surprise me. I wouldn't be surprised by that. But he was validly married to her until she died. Yes? Uh, Dr. O'Donnell, this is uh, in reference to your talk last week. Um, I was just wondering, at the time of the great expansion of the monasteries, mm -hmm. following the evangelization of uh, St. Patrick, was life better in the monasteries than outside? Do we know that? Well, that's a, that's, it's, I suppose what, we mean, what do you mean by better? In the sense that if you were in the monastery, could you have education? Was there people working together? In a certain sense, they were centers of civilization. Absolutely. But it's, it depends on what you mean by in the monastery. Because you not only had the monks 
who were there. There were many lay people associated with the monastery in terms of trades, farming, agriculture. There were, were also called lay monks who were associated with the monastery, did not take formal vows, but were considered to be part of that. Those really functioned as cities. So I suppose the answer would be it depend on whether you liked semblances of urban life or whether you'd prefer to be out sort of in the free range and in the pasture. So uh, they, they certainly were centers of civilization. They would have been great, but I, whether people would have liked the kind of Lenten fast and things like that that would characterize the type of austerity of life and things like that. So to say better, I'm not sure I would say yes. Okay, also left, from, left over from last week, at the time of the conversion, when St. Patrick day, were any of the Druid uh, practices absorbed or sort of uh, baptized into their, as the Christmas tree and the Germanic? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there were a number of things that were part of the ancient Celtic calendar, like the vernal equinox in spring, which became associated with certain festivals. Halloween, Samhain was a huge Celtic festival where supposedly the dead would come back. That's where actually the practice of Halloween came into the United States. It was the Irish immigrants who sort of brought that practice. But that, of course, was baptized by the church into All Saints Day, All Souls Day. Uh, the Druids held that water was sacred. It's a very easy transition to go from water being sacred to baptism with the rites of the blessing of the water and the immersion, burying Christ. So there are a number of wells around Ireland that would have been associated with Druid cults, but would have been baptized, sanctified, and they became like little mini lords or shrines where people would go for water for baptism or for religious purposes, which are still used to this day. Um, St. Bridget, for example, Bridget was sort of one of the goddesses of fire. The great St. Bridget also kept a fire in her convent at Kildara, but it was a symbol of the paschal fire of Christ, the light of the world. So what had been associated with the pagan goddess now becomes associated with Christ. So there were a lot of instances where those things were baptized. What sort of amuses me uh, is that you get a lot of modern scholars who say, oh, these things are all pagan you know, and sort of like preferring to go back to the Druids rather than the Christian thing. Well, of course they were pagan, but the people then had enough sense to leave that and embrace Christianity because it made a lot more sense and it was good news. Now we have the irony that we want to go back to that darkness that their forefathers recognized as darkness and sort of reject the light, which is sort of so they get all excited about the pagan elements. But, you know, there were elements just like this type of process of enculturalization that you find in evangelization today. You affirm what is good and true in the culture, and then you take that and you elevate it and you purify it. And then those elements in the culture that are not good or hostile to the faith, you reject those. So the same process went on in Ireland. But I think Patrick's command of the language, his knowledge of the customs, because he was a Celt himself, and, and seeing all that firsthand. So I think in his preaching, when he would talk about water and the water of baptism, he could draw upon that. And that became something that the people could connect with, but in a much more powerful way because you had the force of truth behind it. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. 
and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.